A few years ago, I was uh, visiting uh, an ashram in southern India, an ashram that um, Ramana Maharshi lived on this um, near this sacred mountain, Arunachala. And uh, one night when I was there, there's a, a big hall. It's called, they call it the Samadhi. It's the place where Ramana is buried. They use Samadhi in a different way. And it's this big, big kind of hall. And every evening in the hour before dinner, um, some men and women from the ashram come and they do a, an hour of chanting and um, then go in and there's dinner. And in, at the far end of the hall, there's the actual samadhi, like a big kind of marble you know, place where he's buried. And it's a thing to do that people circumambulate, walk around the samadhi. And so, I mean, you just come in, you can spend some time doing that every day. During the chanting, uh, people can come and we would like sit against the walls and listen. And from time to time, people get up and walk around. And it's interesting to watch and also be part of all the different ways that people walk around that samadhi with the sense, you know, there's lots of people there. And you just can, and I'm seeing even in myself, sometimes just walking around casually, not paying attention. Sometimes people are chatting or walking around. You can really get this sense of really wanting, you know, to get what Ramana had or wanting to feel the holiness or wanting something. Some people go and really, like, um, prostrate themselves in front. And these are a lot of Indian people, a lot of Western people, all different kinds of people. Um, and they prostrate themselves, and it's just you feel the sense of supplication, needing, or just looking spiritual, the whole range, right, all the stuff we see ourselves go through. But one night, the reason I'm bringing this up, one night, and I'd been there, I'd been there quite a few times, there's a man who's the president of the ashram. So he's lived there for many years, and he, as well as the other uh, male workers there, every night when everyone goes into dinner, they serve the dinner. I mean, you, you sit in lines on the floor, and you have a banana leaf on the floor for your plate, and they come around with the big buckets of the curry and put it on the banana leaves. But it's really this sense of, you know, they're, they're serving us. And so the president was this night, I mean, he always does that, but he was in doing the chanting, and then the chanting ends, and there's the bell for dinner. And he just got up, and I was just happened to be watching him, just so simply and naturally, no big anything, just got up, and with great care, but no big anything, walked around, you know, did his three circumambulations of the samadhi, and then went in to serve the dinner. And somehow it just... Like it's still in my mind, it touched me so much in terms of attitude, in terms of motivation, in terms of the whole sense of um, a spiritual practice as a, a motivation of coming from the motivations of faith, of love, of surrender, rather than at times the motivation of wanting, needing to know the truth needing to understand. You know, you know how we can flip back and forth between those, right? <laughs> we do. So I just thought tonight, since, since last night the talk so beautifully brought up the helping us see through, you know, the sense of self, but I also know occasionally it comes up in people's minds, some thoughts about that, or it comes up in people's minds sometimes a sense of, I want to 
understand that. I need to see through this. When am I going to really understand and live from no self, you know, and it's hopeless or I've got to get there or whatever, just a little bit of... So I just thought tonight I'd, I'd talk about another motivation, another aspect of our practice that opens us up to the same truth, because it's the same truth. And that's um, the shifting from the motivations of wanting or needing to understand to just touch on faith and devotion even and surrender. So I just want to mention a few things in a light way about those. That's what I really felt inspired by watching the president walk around, just the total everyday simplicity of faith, of devotion. No big whoop, you know? No big, I'm so filled with devotion. Let me prostrate myself all the way around the ashram. Just walk in and go serve the dinner, you know? And both of those equal. So, as I said, I could see for myself it really went in to my heart. How often out of really starting with sincere motivation that my path, whether it's meditation practice or being in an ashram or cooking dinner, whatever, can move, can slide into the wanting, into the kind of either wanting or kind of spiritual hubris, you know, kind of trying to magnify my sense of I'm such a spiritually not attained, but getting there. I mean, at least working on it. At least, at least I try, for God's sake. But at least that's what my life is about. Kind of like wanting the truth. And that's very different from loving the truth. And that's really the shift that it makes in my mind. And what do I mean by truth? I don't mean some big explanation of something. In terms of our practice here, just the simplicity of awareness in one moment, not ever, forever, always solid, in one moment. Do I love the truth enough to trust it so much that in this moment of awareness, this is truth revealing itself? Because where else could it be? It's a real sense of the surrender into what's happening right now. As an expression, that's what awareness is. That's what mindfulness is. The opening into the unknown of whatever this moment is presenting. And awareness and this moment are not two separate things. Only seems like that from the space of thinking. This is from the famous Zen master Dogen. He says, Truth is not far away. It is ever-present. It is not something to be attained since not one of your steps leads away from it. When you have thrown off your ideas as to mind and body, the original truth will fully appear. Zen is simply the expression of truth. Therefore, longing and striving are not the true attitudes of Zen. If you cannot find the truth right where you are, where else do you expect to find it? Right where we are and right with whatever's arising, right 
in this instant. So this quality that to me speaks of um, this kind of devotion, it's faith, it's trust, is that it's what we're practicing here. Moment after moment, we're practicing dying into whatever's arising in this moment. Not with fear, but with trust. Trust, not that something that we want to happen will happen, not in the next thing, not in anything. Just so trusting in awareness that we don't need to hold back or hold on or keep on, you know, constructing a sense of me, me, me. But of course we can't make this happen. That's why it's trust. (laughs) That's why it's surrender. That's why it's not do A, B, C, and D, and then you get E. (laughs) It's really, as somebody said today, it's really radical. Just do your chanting, walk around the samadhi, and go serve dinner. Just wake up in the morning, brush your teeth, eat your breakfast, come in and sit. One thing isn't better or worse or more spiritual or less spiritual than another. Every single moment of any of that, the truth is revealing itself. And we surrender into the awareness in that moment. You know, Byron Katie, she has a, I think it was the name of one of her books. I didn't read it. I just liked the name, Loving What Is. That's our practice. Loving what is. I don't mean by loving like, oh, I'm so glad that my foot hurts today and I'm feeling tired. I just love it. No. No, Not love in that sense, okay? That's like how we love pizza or we love pie. But love in the sense of Surrendering our holding back, surrendering our ideas, our assumptions, our sense of what does it mean about me, just the willingness to be totally aware of whatever this moment is without adding anything extra. Does that sound familiar? It's only what we've been blabbing about the whole time. But just trying to, to just change a little bit. When we're in a moment like that, you all know, when the, when the trust, the surrender into the awareness, just for that moment, is nothing held back, there isn't anything separate. It starts, you know, there's no like me, an object, or this is a version is happening, and I'm being aware, or I'm surrendering. In that moment, there's nothing separate. It's just the truth manifesting itself. There's this poem from Izumi Shikibu. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Sharon likes to say that to pay attention is to love. Quality of total presence. The moon at dawn, I knew myself completely, no part left out. The aching foot, the grumpy mind, the hungry stomach, the unpleasant sound. I knew myself completely, no part left out. doesn't matter what it is that's happening. It's that, just in that moment, that quality of surrender. This is from Taku Ergin Rinpoche, who was a 
really wonderful Tibetan Dzogchen master that all of us, except Andrea, weren't we all together when we went to see him? We, were, we all went to see him together in Nepal uh, a couple of years before he died. He says, the present method for becoming quickly accustomed to the unfabricated state of awareness is to have devotion to enlightened beings and compassion to sentient beings. Devotion and compassion are both love. In the moment of love, the empty nature dawns nakedly. That's the real line I love. In the moment of love, the empty nature dawns nakedly. He says, if in this moment of love, of devotion, of surrender, of trust, of faith, if in this moment you can look inwardly, it is like the sun unobscured by clouds. The nature of emptiness is nakedly manifest. So we remember to look inwardly. So what I want to talk a little about why how is that work? The nature of emptiness is nakedly manifest in the moment of love. In one of his suttas, this is just a little snapshot from part of this sutta, the Buddha is talking about the immeasurable deliverance of mind, of which there are, you'll be happy to know, various types of immeasurable deliverance of mind. Four of them happen to be the Brahma-viharas. But anyway, he's talking about these, and he's saying, what do they all share? In some way, all these different, these different immeasurable deliverances are all the same. How? And he says, lust, lust is a maker of measurement. Hate is a maker of measurement. Delusion is a maker of measurement. In other words, and this is the note from Bhikkhu Bodhi, lust, hate, and delusion may be understood as makers of measurement in that they impose limitations upon the range and depth of the mind. And the way I would put it, the way it looks to me, is that when there's any of those, lust, hate, delusion, the experience, if we, when we look into our mind, when we look into our experience, it is limited. It's constricted, or there's self and others, or there's awareness and that, or this thing we like and don't like and everything else. The mind is limited. There's senses of separation, and that's how we live so much of our life. In the moment of love, devotion, Look in the mind, and how does he say it? Just quick. The nature of emptiness is nakedly manifest. There's no measurement in that moment. So just as with uh, Panya, with wisdom, with insight, as Joseph was talking last night, there's a moment when, and one of the other ways he talks about deliverance of mind is through voidness, which is through really having insight into uh, the emptiness of self, of me or mine. So it's on a, on, a, on a par, you could say, equal. But So when we talk about it through wisdom, we really, in a moment of insight, there's no measurement there. 
But sometimes that's not accessible. And for some of us at certain times and for others of us at more times, the path of faith, of devotion, of trust might open up more naturally at certain times or in who we, in who we are or just how our mind works. And it kind of, you know, they work together. So in the moment of love, deep in the Brahma Vihara, in that moment of just surrendering into the truth of this moment, the moment of just trusting awareness completely for a moment, there's no measurement discernible in consciousness, in mind. And just to look that we can explore this understanding or this kind of heartfelt um, understanding is not exactly the right word, and experience isn't the right word, knowing, you could say, trusting, from these various ways. This is the Buddha, the rest of this. In a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed, so now we're talking about arhats, these three, these three makers of measurement, are abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, so they are no longer subject to future arising. And of all the kinds of immeasurable deliverance of mind, the unshakable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. (laughs) Now that unshakable deliverance of mind is empty of lust, empty of hate, empty of delusion. Okay, that's the mind of an arhat, unshakable. Nothing's going to shake back in the measurement. But moment to moment, that's not like, like Dogen says, that's what we're practicing. Not just, you know, putting in our time and hoping somewhere a big light goes off. That's what we're practicing moment to moment. No measurement. I'm not saying it's simple or easy. Okay, we know that. We run into, you know, things that make it difficult, kind of the, our safety nets, our comfort zones, the places that we say, oh no, you know, not this. I mean, how many times have I said, if I know if awakening means this has to go, or I have to be with this, forget it, I don't want any part of that. <laughs> Notice those little moments when they, when they come up. Oh, but I wanted, before I go into that, I want to say one more thing about measurement, about coming from Joseph's talk last night, something that Sokni Rinpoche describes in his book. Uh, also, I just love that. He's talking about, actually, the sense, the felt sense of me in a moment. Not the idea, not some idea, but actually when you're sitting here, walking around, brushing your teeth, and you tune in, there's a felt sense of me, Right? You know what I'm talking about? This isn't, you don't know. You don't have a felt sense of me. I'm scratching my face. I. It's, that's very basic. We all have that, right? Probably, or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> because you wouldn't feel like you had a problem. <laughs> so he says, he says that's the original measuring point for samsara. He says it's a, in Tibet, he says, when they want to uh, make the footprint to, to set the foundation for building a building, they start in the middle and they get like a rope or a string or something and from the middle point they measure out you know how far it goes and then all the way around like in a circle or a square so that middle point is you know the actual measuring point for building the house. 
So he says, that's how the felt sense of me, everything in our experience in terms of measurement is measured from that. Just in a moment. It's just happening in a moment. But it's, it's kind of interesting to play with. For some reason, this has just been popping up in my mind sometimes in the, in the sittings. Lately, quite interesting. But just see which measurements you notice. Measurement of time. Starts right here, doesn't it? Past, future, five minutes from now, yesterday, how long is this talk going to last at all? It starts from here. Measurements of space. There's space all around here, right? Usually (laughs) the space all starts from here. Measurements of self and object. In a moment, you know, in meditating, there's a sense of self in the object. There's awareness in the object. As long as there's that sense of me, there's that sense of measurement. And when it drops away, which it often does, people love it. You know, people come in in interviews or in your own experience, wow, it was so nice. There was just no sense of me. It is really nice. I knew myself completely, no part left out, because... She's looking at the moon and totally present, and the measurement drops away. Myself isn't really her. It's just the totality of awareness in this moment. Boom, that. No measurement past, future. It means this about me or you or anything. So just play with that. Just seeing, referring back to me, referring back to me, that sense of measurement. And even though it's really a kind of a burden that doesn't help us to intellectually hear that or think that. In fact, we just is another thing. I'm so stupid, I keep adding this burden on top of myself. The times when it's gone, there's that sense, oh, wow, what's different? No measurement. That's all. No measurement. Nature, for many people, is a really uh, inspiring support for that. There's a way, and, and you know how many awakening poems, like the one I just read, are in nature. Many, many people here, when you're going through a really hard time, or you're just a little tense or tight, or things are just blah, or whatever, going outside, even when it's not nice, it doesn't have to be nice. There's something about being in nature that, for many people, just the quietness, just the nature the fact that there's no one else around to get the mana, the conceit, the comparing going. Mostly we don't compare ourselves to trees, to turkeys, <laughs> I hope. Turkeys maybe, I don't know, but not to trees, not to the stars, not to the chipmunks, you know. And so kind of sometimes imperceptibly, that sense of felt sense of me isn't being recreated so strongly moment after moment. And sometimes it does, just that sense of peace, you know. That's what it is. It isn't actually the nature. It's just that it supports our trusting, settling into the simplicity of just this. We don't really usually compare this sunset to last night's sunset. I mean, sometimes we do, and then we realize we're missing it. We tend to just, oh, it's like this. Peace. No measurement. To pay attention is to love. To the simplest of things. That's really how moment-by-moment mindfulness works. We start by, you know, learning to use our experience, sensations of breath, sensations in walking, the movements of the arms, noticing the thought, whatever sense object at the sixth sense doors is arising. 
we use that to kind of remind us to, to trigger awareness, to notice awareness of. You know, we start with awareness of breath, awareness of this. But then when there's that quality of just of surrender into the awareness, there's those moments when it stops being awareness of, and it's just the completeness, you could say, of the moment, just this. And the simplest things can trigger that. This is a silly example, but I really noticed it the last couple of days. I have this one teacup that I really love. First, you must know, tea, like a pot of tea in the morning, is like the high point of my day. I just love to sit and have tea. And I used to have three of these teacups, but two of them have gone the way of all things, and I only have one left now. And it's just perfect somehow. It fits my hand. It, it's just, I just love it. I know I'm totally attached. When someone stays in my house and I'm away, I hide it so they won't break it. Um, I know all this. I can live with that. I just, I notice it. Uh, I know it's going to break. I've gone online. I even found I could buy more, but it's not the same. It's, it's this teacup. But I've noticed, I just noticed, I don't know, I wasn't thinking about this talk, but I was just noticing that. I mean, when, so when I'm washing it every morning, I'm a little more careful because how do these things break? You know, you hit it in the sink, you hit something with it in the drainer. So I'm just a little more careful. But what I noticed the last couple of days, which was lovely, is it starts, okay, sure, it starts from greed. We can't pretend it's a highfalutin motivation. It's like I'm holding onto the cup, but I'm really paying attention. And it, then it really just stopped being about me and the cup and holding on. It's just the awareness. It's just what it was. Awareness and these things were happening. And it's not awareness of or that and awareness. It's just this is it. And the awareness gets much more interesting. And you know what you're doing. I know I'm brushing the cup. But none of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter. Anything, anything opens us up to this recognition, this trust and awareness, this love for awareness, really. And when we start loving awareness more than we crave and hate the things that are happening, then trust and faith, devotion, surrender, start happening much more by themselves. And that only deepens our faith, deepens our trust. So that comes by way of mindfulness. It also comes by way of actually recognizing, cultivating faith itself. At times we need to, and at sometimes more than others, and some people's mm, psychological makeup, you could say, is more one way than others. Like some people are more wisdom types. Some people think of themselves as more faith types or devotion types. But I just want to say we all need all of it at different times. You know, it's like none of us can just do it in one way because all the different factors come in our minds. I've always thought of myself as a real wisdom type, that what got me into practice was wanting to understand the nature of things, wanting to know the truth, what's going on. But just today, Sharda said to me, who knows me really well for years, we've known each other for, I don't know, 30 years, she says, oh, you're such a devotion, devotional type. I said, me? Devotional? No way. I'm the least devotional person I know. That's why I'm talking about this. Yeah, she's also shaking her head. Because, you know, we always talk about what we need to learn ourselves, right? You've probably figured that out by now. But <laughs> So anywhere 
along our path, along our spiritual path, in a retreat like this, but also in our whole life, we're going to run into, whether we have a lot of um, tendency toward devotion, surrender, whether or not, whether wisdom is our way, and when it gets blocked, we're all going to run into, and I bet you all have already here, times when it's just really challenging. Not in a way we don't like it, but where either our motivation drops out or we hit this place where, like I said before, I just, I can't go there if that's what it's about. And sometimes people have mentioned this. I mean, I won't say any particular story, but it's something I also recognize in myself. Times when what I find my mind holding on to in a moment is some suffering mental pattern. It's not like I'm holding on to some great idea of something in my life, but some sense of seeing myself in some screwed up way that's so familiar that it feels like a comfortable old blanket or a really nice glove. You think, no, if that has to go, who am I? Who would I be without my complete self-loathing? You know, <laughs> How can I make it through the world without this? Never mind when it's something that we like. But for all of us, our views, our beliefs, our deepest commitments, all of our ideas about ourselves, not some but all, are going to be challenged. And our views are so what we use to try and construct, hopelessly but we never give up, trying to construct some sense of solidity, of order out of the chaos, of right? Knowing what's going to happen. Trying to make ourselves better. But enlightenment is not a self-improvement project. It's not about making our personalities better, nicer, kinder. Luckily, that happens as a kind of side effect. (laughs) I mean, if you're getting angrier and meaner and crueler, something isn't working. That's true. (laughs) But that's not the point. You know, we start out that way. We all do, of course. But it's going to get challenged. And then we go, wow. Stephen Batchelor, you know, he's quite a brilliant guy. Not that everyone always agrees with him here, but he's a brilliant guy. <laughs> he says, <laughs> he's too smart for me to even know if I agree or not. He says, emptiness is not just an experience of oceanic bliss. It's a falling apart of all of our strategies of self-interest, self-centeredness, and seeming protection. And although it is freeing, it also evokes, it brings up great disconcertion, great kind of confusion, dis-ease, fear, at times, like being in no man's land. We think we want emptiness, and yeah, we think of oceanic bliss. We don't think of how all of our strategies have to also fall apart to recognize emptiness. Again, only in a moment. Remember how the mind, from the sense, the felt sense of me, projects into the future. Oh, everything has to fall apart forever. How will I function? Or oceanic bliss, when will I get there and have it? But just in a moment, notice when we're running up against some strategy, some view, some sense of self, some way of being, the way we're practicing our understandings, that somehow the mind goes, no not this, I can't do this anymore. That's when consciously calling on faith, 
on surrender, on devotion, if that's helpful, compassion, devotion to um, enlightened beings, as he says, it could be devotion to Buddha, to Dharma, to Sangha, can be helpful. One of the um, definitions or descriptions of sada, which is faith, translated as faith, is confidence. Another one, the way Upandita described it, is willingness to do. It gives us the energy to kind of take another step, if you will, to show up and die into this next moment, whatever it is, to take a breath and go, okay, this too, and just open into it. Without faith, we do just get stuck. Okay, I can't do it. I'm out of here. You know, luckily, we all have moments like that. I mean, we really go. (laughs) We all have moments, oh, I'm glad I don't have my car keys. You know, okay, I give myself until after tea time. If it still feels like this, I go home. You know, we all make those bargains. But you're all still here. So I'm not talking about that as a mental state. I'm talking about when we really run up against something. Without faith, we wouldn't do anything. So just recognizing that that is really kind of like the ground spring that gives us all the energy to keep going. So in terms of of this devotion, in terms of surrender, in terms of faith, it may be starting externally, kind of dualistically, a little even artificially faith in your teachers or in the Buddha or in the teachings that you've heard or inspiration from another being. Nothing wrong with that. That's what gets us going. That's how it starts. We all need faith in the face of the unreliability of samsara at times. We all need something to call on just to get us moving. But it's not that the faith makes everything clear and okay. The faith just gives us that energy to be willing to open again completely into the unknown, to take a step into who knows what. That's the kind of the paradox of faith that gives us the courage, enormous courage, to kind of just let go, surrender into who knows what, to trust that the truth is right here, no matter how mundane or boring or really, truly scary here is. Do you ever see a movie that was out a couple of years ago called, um, what was it called, Touching the Void, about these, these two mountain climbers? I'll just say it quick. Anyways, it was a recreation of an actual event that happened, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago, when two men were mountain climbing together in, I think it was Peru, somewhere in the Andes, very high mountain, and I really make it short. But so they were, they're roped together, they're coming down, and um, out in the middle of nowhere, no other people around, and they slipped and fell, and one of the men fell over the edge of a cliff, and he's tied, right? And the other guy is, is still on the land. And they hang like that. He hangs like that for, I don't know, an hour or so. And the one on the land's trying to get him up, the tra- and they can't. So the one on the land's sort of being pulled. He can't get the other guy up. He can't go anywhere. They, he, and his choice is either to like just get pulled over the edge. Well, he made the other choice. He cut the rope. So he cut the rope. The guy fell into a huge crevasse. So he just saw the guy go, and that was it. And so as far as he knew, his friend was dead. And so he made his way down the mountain to base camp. So the other guy 
who fell into, you know, crevasses like a big cut in the ice. And he fell down deep, broke his leg. Uh, his leg was really shattered. And he was stuck in this crevasse. He couldn't get back up. There was nowhere to go. And he said he had a deep, deep kind of primal terror of these crevasses. So he was in this, like, dark kind of place like this. His friend was gone. His leg was shattered. And he stayed like that for, like, a day and a night. No water, no food. Realized no one was going to come. In this primal terror. And then he looked at the, the only other way to go was there was, he was like on a ledge. There was another opening and the crevasse went down even deeper and deeper and darker, way down to where there was no light at all. And he said, you know, he's totally terrified, but he couldn't get up. And he said, this is a question, he said, I have to make a choice. I may be wrong, but I can't just abdicate. I can't just kind of stay here frozen. So he finally worked up his courage, and basically he lowered himself down as far as he could go with his rope into this other crevasse. Total terror of it. Just, this is like total, in a way, okay, it's a heavy example, but it's like total surrendering to the unknown. He said, I can't abdicate. I have to make a choice. The other choice, to consciously make the choice to stay here and starve to death. That was his other choice. So he lowered himself down with no clue And, of course, it turned out that as he went down, he actually hit bottom, and there was kind of like a tunnel up that he could actually get up and out. And with his broken leg, and he could hardly move, and it took him like another couple of days on this shattered leg. Really, it's unbearable to watch. Really unbearable to watch. So every moment, he had to keep making that choice, even after he got out, to keep going, to keep going, to keep going over this horrendous landscape. And so... Obviously, he got back. His friend had just burned his clothes, was just about to leave when he got back. So, um, but that sense of, you know, we're in the worst possible place, in a place that everything's fallen apart, of primal terror. What can I do? Where can I go? It's totally hopeless. I know that's exaggerated, but we have moments in our practice it feels like that. There's moments in uh, just we're brought up against ourselves, our patterns, our sense of self, and it can feel at that depth of, there's nothing I can do. And faith is the quality of mind and heart that simply gives us the courage, the confidence, the willingness to do. And here all it is is, okay, this too. Awareness of this too. Loving the truth in this. That's all. Even if everything I think is me is going to go, there's enough trust to meet this moment, not knowing where it's going to go. Because if we knew, that's already back in the limitation of the known. That's measurement. So, yeah, we need to call on faith, something to help us look outside of the view of reality we've unquestioningly been constructed. You know? And sometimes we need someone else can pull us along. That's what's so great about Sangha. That's what's so great in a way about just being here and the schedule, even if you don't follow the schedule exactly, there's not much else to do. And sooner or later, I know you've you've found things and I'm sure that you've found things we don't know about, but (laughs) sometimes we don't find out for years and I won't even tell you some of the stuff we found out, but sooner or later, 
all that stuff gets old and you really feel like you're wasting your time and you go, right, here I am. Step into this void. There's a story I just want to tell about a woman in the time of the Buddha. How we Somehow we don't want to know. Let me just stay in my own little suffering state and kind of practice, but just in these little limits that I already know, not outside my comfort zone. Her name was Kema, and she was the wife of a king who was a follower of the Buddha. I mean, the kings had lots of wives. and She was incredibly beautiful and very spoiled and loved pleasure and beauty, and she lived a life of luxury. And the king was always trying to get her to come and hear the Buddha's teaching. And she never wanted to go because she said, well, I've heard that this guy talks about renunciation and he's not really big on sense pleasures and I really don't, you know, I'm not really so interested in that, so I don't want to go. So the king tricked her. He hired, the Buddha was, was talking in a beautiful park, pleasure park. So the king hired uh, a singer poet to stroll around and sing a song extolling the beauties of this particular park where the Bu- Buddha was teaching <laughs> so that Kema would hear it. And then she heard this song. She thought, oh, well, let me go see this beautiful park because she couldn't stay away from something new and beautiful. So she went. And he tricked her because she went, and she was on the outskirts. And this is just the opposite of the story I told last time about the poor, miserable wretch who sat on the outside in the Buddha. This is the most beautiful, pleasure-loving queen, Kema, the golden one, But also, when the Buddha looked around with his eye, who can hear the Dhamma? It was, aha, it was Kema. And so, first what he did to speak to her mind is he constructed, with his magic powers, the image of a celestial woman so beautiful, so much more beautiful than Kema. And she saw this, and she was taken by the beauty. Wow, incredible beauty. And then he had... This image just slowly, slowly age and get old and cracked and gray and flabby and disintegrate and die. So she was watching all of this. So it's like our whole life compressed into three minutes. And she was watching all of this and she said, wow, it went in. If that can happen to her, that's going to happen to me. So her mind was open, and the Buddha gave the whole teaching. And she is a rare; she was a rare example of a laywoman who, on hearing the teaching, completely became an arhat all at once. So she's a woman. She was considered, you know. Then, of course, she became a nun. So the king lost out. I don't think he planned on that happening. <laughs> but he had one or two other women to, you know. I don't think he suffered too much. Um, But she was considered the foremost in wisdom of all the bhikkhunis, of all the nuns, because she was so wise. One of the few examples of a layperson in one stroke becoming an arhat. But basically, up until that moment, it's like, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I want to stay in my pleasure palace. I want to stay in my comfort zone even though she had the capacity to completely awaken. And, of course, once she saw things as they were, free of the concepts, boom. So this is faith. This is confidence. What helps us open to it? Of course, in the, in the suttas, the classic Buddha teaching, when they talk about faith, I was looking it up in some of the suttas, and it's always defined 
as faith in the Buddha, faith in the Dhamma, faith in the Sangha. And that may or may not be what inspires this quality of devotion or confidence in us. It may be something else, and that's fine. It may be for me it's really the faith in, in the, the purity of awareness, in the accessibility of awareness in the truth of the moment. Sometimes to me it's the, the confidence, the inspiration that comes from being with or reflecting on certain teachers I've had or known or read about, or sometimes it's teaching, sometimes it's other colleagues or friends, sometimes it's listening to a yogi, because it's not personal. It's whatever you hear something or someone's manifesting in that moment, just kind of the dhamma, the purity of awareness, or seeing the emptiness, you catch it, right? Because it's true for all of us. So faith can be triggered in many different ways when we surrender our preconceptions and open. And it can be really quite simple. It can be expressed very simply. My favorite example of like an expression of the simplicity of faith, of just living from and acting from faith, in the suttas, I mean, not in all of life, is the example, of course, of Ananda, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, with Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, his cousin, And for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life, Ananda was his attendant. And Ananda um, was totally devoted to the Buddha, totally devoted to the Dhamma, of course, and a very hard worker. And I said he wasn't, he was one of the one of the few really famous bhikkhus that you read about in all the suttas who wasn't an arhat through most of all the suttas. He was he was, he was a, a stream enterer, right? He wasn't just like, a, you know, dodo. But in, in those days with, you know, Kashapa and Sariputta and Moggallana and Kema and all of these people, he was kind of like, you know, in, in, kind of in junior high school. But he was renowned for his kindness, for his devotion to the Buddha, for his memory, but that's another, another piece. But when... He was, had so total faith and devotion to the Buddha that when the Buddha, before he became the Buddha's um, attendant, he'd, also, he'd already been in the Bhikkhu Sangha for many years, the Buddha needed a new attendant, and he was kind of looking around the group of, of monks and saying, well, asking, would anyone volunteer or whatever? And Ananda didn't raise his hand. Ananda didn't offer. And then the Buddha asked him, and he said, why, why didn't you volunteer? And he said, because he had such perfect faith in the Buddha, he said, the Buddha knows who's going to be the best person to be his attendant. I don't need to volunteer. If I'm the right person, he'll know it. He'll ask me, you know? Such total faith. So he's kind. He's generous. He's inclusive. He serves the Buddha just wholeheartedly for 25 years. He, is, he asked for some boons, for some favors, when he agreed to become the attendant. I'm not going to say what they were, but they were all things about setting conditions so that he wouldn't be treated special, Ananda. That's what the favors he asked. Not, oh, if I'll be your attendant, if you'll do this for me, if you'll do that for me. It was things so he wouldn't be special, and because he had such a good memory, that if he missed any of the Buddha's suttas or sermons, that then they would be repeated to Ananda later. Because Ananda's the one, when you read the suttas and they begin, thus have I heard, that was Ananda. 
So after the Buddha died, he could remember every talk that he'd heard by heart. So he was that devoted. But he also, his devotion shows up as this generosity, this inclusion of spirit, where he's always trying to get people access to the Buddha, access to the Dhamma. And I've been around different spiritual scenes where it works the other way. People want to get into the in crowd, and then it's kind of like subtly, no, you've got to protect the teacher, keep people away. You know, we're the in crowd. Ananda was just the reverse. He was always trying to get people to hear the Dhamma, to get them in. And he was really kind. There's times where people would fall in love with him for his kindness. There's one story where he was walking by a well in the village, and there was a woman at the well getting water. And she was um, a woman from, um, I guess, of the untouchable case, what they call the Dalit case now. And so she was at the well, but they weren't allowed. In that case, they weren't allowed to actually get water for themselves. So she couldn't get water. So Ananda walked by, saw what was happening, said, what, you know, very kindly, what are you doing? Can I help? And she said, I just need water, venerable sir. He goes, oh, of course, gets water, gives her water, and walks on. And she falls in love with Ananda. She follows him. She follows him back, you know, and she's following him around until finally the Buddha sees what's happening. And he says, what? Because I love Ananda. Let me serve him. Let me take care of him. And the Buddha said, you know, it's not Ananda you're in love with. It's his kindness. You fell in love with his kindness, really basically the pleasant feeling of the kindness if we want to get down to the nub of it. But that's just one of many examples of how Ananda manifested and lived his, his life, his holy life. Devotion, simplicity reminds me of the president just walking around the samadhi and going to serve dinner. You know, that is one sim- simple way of living with faith, of living with devotion. As I said, it may start seeming really dualistic for us. I'm talking about in the moment of love, there's no measurement. And for us, it starts by looking for something to inspire faith, something to inspire this confidence. Tulku Organ again. In the beginning, you need fabricated devotion because natural, unfabricated devotion or uncontrived compassion does not occur immediately. So we're practicing karuna in a formal way. We, we need to cultivate, at times, fabricated devotion, calling up faith, calling up, can I trust, can I surrender? That's fine. Because in the moment when the faith, the confidence, the trust really comes, in that moment, it's the real thing. It doesn't matter. Like me and my teacup, it starts pretty, in a pretty banal way, but there's just, when the awareness is there, when the love is there, if you look inside, there's no measurement. Inside what? I don't know, the body, the mind. There's no inside, outside, right? Because there's no measurement. There's no separation. It's just this, form and formless. Ajahn Sumedha, though, says a really interesting thing I found in, in one retreat. We were sitting with him. He said, in his experience, Ajahn Sumedha, you know, he's a Western, uh, an American man who's been an ordained bhikkhu. He's a, a, a teacher in the Ajahn Chah tradition for over 30 years. Quite wise and very funny. I think we played a talk of his here, right? Very funny. Well, at this one retreat, he said, he said, in his mind, the biggest hindrance he's seen for Westerners in practice is self-doubt. 
that we tend to doubt not only our self-hatred, that's one thing, but self-doubt in that we don't have faith, we don't have confidence in our own insights, in our own experience of awareness, in our own potential for liberation, or even our own experiences in a moment of liberation from our patterns, even momentary. And he says in part, this is him again, he thinks it's because for many of us in the West, in part culturally also, our personalities are so strong and believable. I actually think it's more we get so caught up in our personalities, we pay so much attention to our personalities. I mean, everyone has personalities, but I notice when I've been in Asia for a while, yeah, people have personalities, and they're not all lovely, but it just isn't like in the forefront of every moment, my personality, my personality, and your personality, and let's process our personalities. And <laughs> when I come back to, honestly, <laughs> when I come back here after being in Asia, I feel like I'm falling into this culture of which I'm a part, of like this neurotic obsession with personality. Okay, that's a little, he didn't say all that, that was me, but he says, <laughs> here in the West, our personalities are really strong and we believe them so much that we get really caught back into them. And so then, since for many of us, part of our personality is this, I'm no good, I can't be free, that insight wasn't real, because if it was real, it wouldn't have gone away. If I was really able to be free, then I would never be angry again. If that was really a moment of awareness, then I wouldn't be suffering now. If that was really awareness, then how come these other people are asking so much more intelligent questions and I can't come up with anything? All that stuff. And we believe it. We believe it. That's why we need to just cultivate a little faith. It doesn't Just step outside of the box of personality. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to talk back to it. You don't have to shut it up. We just don't have to, you know, set it up on the throne. The Buddha's there, not our personalities. (laughs) So, So, yeah, we have to work a little bit, maybe, of faith. Taking the three refuges, for me, has become a way of spending a lot of time in Buddhist countries. Refuge in the Buddha or refuge in the seed of awakening. Refuge in awareness. Refuge in what Dogen said. The truth is right here, right now. Where else can you find it? And refuge, and that's not only true for everyone else, it's, it also includes me. Refuge in the Dhamma, the truth. Refuge in the Sangha, the real meaning of sangha, the classical meaning, is actually the, the sangha of awakened beings or the awakened mind stream, just knowing that's possible, inspiring ourselves. If not that, finding, being in nature, what brings about, again, the sense of mystery, the sense of awe, the sense of stepping outside of our ideas of the possible or what the world even is. Again, from Arunachal, I often use this image or it's not really a mountain. It's kind of like a big hill, but there's nothing else around, so it looks like a mountain. About 3,000 feet high, and a friend who had gone up to the top told me early in the morning, 2 or 3 in the morning, there's lots of mountain monkeys up there. There's monkeys down below, which are very, they're not tame, but I mean, they'll jump. If you have one speck of food in your hand, they'll jump on you and grab it. They're very different. The mountain monkeys up on the top are much more wild. And he said they would just kind of get on the edge. It's very rocky, very rocky high, 
rocks and boulders down below, a few trees and shrubs, not very wooded. And he said, these monkeys, they just get on the edge of the mountain, stand there, and then they just throw themselves off into space. Just, and they always land somewhere. <laughs> they land on a rock or they grab a bush or somewhere. But just that sense of abandon into the moment. The monkeys of Arunachala. Can we just find that willingness to surrender, to throw ourselves into the moment? It's going to happen anyway. We might as well just relax into it. There's no way to stop it. From Carlos Castaneda, talking about his sorcerers, you know, he said, discipline for sorcerers is the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are strong and tough, but because they are filled with awe. Can we just meet each moment, this moment, only this moment, not even each, just this moment, filled with awe, with the possibility of loving awareness rather than hating and wanting and reacting to whatever it is that's arising together with awareness? Just like, wow, awareness is here. How wonderful. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. I just want to read the last paragraph of Ash Wednesday by T.S. Eliot. Blessed Sister, Holy Mother, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks, our peace in his will. And even among these rocks, Sister, Mother and spirit of the river, spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated, and let my cry come unto thee. So we just thought we'd end by doing the refuges and precepts together. Five of the eight. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa. Buddhang saranangachami, Dhammang saranangachami, 
Sangang sadanang chami, dutiyampi budang sadanang chami, dutiyampi damang sadanang chami, dutiyampi sangang sadanang chami, datiyampi budang sadanang chami. Datiyampi damang sadanang chami, datiyampi sangang sadanang chami. Panati pata weramenisika parang samariyami, adina dana weramenisika parang samariyami. Abramacharya, Vairamani, Sikaparang, Samariyami. Musawada, Vairamani, Sikaparang, Samariyami. Sura, Niraya, Majapamadatana, Vairamani, Sikaparang, Samariyami. Vikala Bhojana, Vairamani Sikaparang Samariyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Vairamani Sikaparang Samariyami Ujjasayana Mahasayana Vairamani Sikaparang Samariyami Idang Me Silang Magapala Nyanasa Pachayahotu Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.